If you could turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 18 as we continue on in our Acts series. Uh, This week we're really looking at urban gospel ministry, the gospel going forward in an urban setting. Uh, So if you turn with me to Acts chapter 18, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 18 and 19, uh, but I'm just going to read a few verses to, to start us off before I pray. Acts chapter 18, starting from verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you are the God whose power is magnified in weakness. That you love to use weak vessels like me to magnify your glory. Lord, I just pray this morning that you would powerfully speak to us from your word, that you would fill us full of confidence about your work in this world, sending the gospel forward. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1998 came the release of one of my favorite films, The Truman Show. It's a film centered around the life of the fictional character Truman Burbank. Truman is the first child to be legally adopted by a corporation and is unaware that his daily life is being broadcast continuously around the world as part of a reality TV show. Truman has absolutely no idea that he lives in an artificial world. He has a job in an insurance business. He has a lovely wife. He lives in a friendly community. But his life, in fact, is the giant set for a global TV show, reality TV show. Everything Truman knows is not what it seems. And the interesting thing about this film is that Truman initially thought he had the right perspective. He thought he understood life, his life that is, but he was profoundly wrong. In order to find freedom, in fact, Truman needed to see things rightly. He needed to change his perspective to see things as they are, to see beyond the artificial world that he lived in and to see the real world. Well, when it comes to evangelism, like Truman, I think we also need to adjust our perspective and see things rightly. If you're like me, when it comes to sharing the gospel, we can quickly find ourselves losing heart over what seems to be poor results, hard hearts, mocking of friends or family. And with seemingly poor results comes discouragement. And with discouragement, like Truman Burbank, we can lose perspective. Well, if you're feeling discouraged this morning in your attempts to evangelize, I believe God wants to help you to see things from his perspective. I believe he wants to adjust your perspective to see his plan going forward. 
And so the title for this message, if you're uh, taking notes, is City to City, the spread of the gospel in the face of discouragement. I really want to take just two simple parts to this message. The first part, I just want to unpack these couple of chapters. Uh, um, so I'm calling it the tale of two cities. And then the second part, I, r- I really just want to unpack the passage and look at some implications for our city, some implications for us. But if you're taking notes again, there's one driving point in this message. One thing we'll be ha- hammering home and which I really hope the Lord gives you uh, from this message. And that is that even in the midst of discouragement, the gospel will go forward. Even in the midst of discouragement, of opposition, of disappointment, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is going forward. So why don't we begin with our first part, part one, the tale of two cities. Well, last week, uh, well, last time we were in Acts, we were looking at Athens. Paul was in Athens, which was a city of about... 10,000 people. And really, Athens, you can think about it as the intellectual, philosophical center of the Greco-Roman world at this point in time. Famous for philosophers and thought, this was the center. Well, if Athens was the philosophical center of the world, Corinth was the commercial center. Corinth was a busy, bustling city of, at its peak, about 750,000 people. It was a city that straddled our peninsula and it had a small canal slash slipway across the middle of that that peninsula. So if you were a a tradesperson or a seaman with a boat, you could drag your boat the extra distance across the slipway, saving yourself some 300 kilometers of treacherous sailing. It was likewise a city that was full of seafarers, a city full of seafarers and equally a city full of worship to the Roman god Neptune, the god of seafarers. It was not only a city full of seafarers, but it was a city known for sexual immorality. In fact, some 300 years earlier, the term to Corinthianize meant to practice sexual immorality. But not only this, it was a massive emporium. It was full of wool, of ivory, of dates, of slaves, of gold and spices from all around the Roman world were found here in the city of Corinth. It was like New York City meets Las Vegas Sin City, all in one big city. That is Corinth, and that is where Paul has arrived as our story continues. So open with me again to Acts chapter 18. This time we'll be reading from verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul comes to Corinth and immediately it seems he meets this couple, this Italian couple that's been kicked out of Rome by Claudius the emperor and have come to settle in Corinth. Now, 
Claudius and, uh, sorry, Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers by trade. And because Paul's got the same trade, he stays with them. And he stays with them and he's working hard during the week. He's working hard, working, making tents, sharing in this business. But every Saturday he's out at the synagogue. But note what it says. He's at the synagogue, but he's persuading. The word is persuade. He's out to convince Jews and Greeks. He's in the synagogue trying to persuade people. The the word, in fact, is used three other times in our two chapters. Paul is out to persuade, to convince, to show people, to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. I just think it's, it's worth pausing here a moment just to, just to note this point. I think sometimes as people who believe in the doctrines of election, in Calvinism, in God's sovereign grace, sometimes we can run the risk of a hyper-Calvinism. Calvinism, the idea that God sovereignly chooses and elects some people and calls them to follow him. We can sometimes sit back and be tempted to think, well, if God's sovereign, I don't need to do anything. I can just sit back and, and chill and people will become Christians. No, no worries, right? Or when it comes to sharing the gospel, I'll just like, you know, just throw it out there. Like, and this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There you are. Take it or leave it. But that was not Paul's practice. He was out there trying to persuade people, trying to show them, trying to demonstrate that, look, Jesus Christ is who he says he was. This gospel's true. Well, let's keep reading. Acts 18, verse 5. When Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Paul, uh, sorry, Tylus, <laughs> sorry, Silas and Timothy, not Tylus, um, they come. Sorry, it's been a long day. Um, Silas and Timothy come and arrive, and it's probably better to say Paul began to become preoccupied with the gospel. That is, Silas and Timothy arrive, and they probably start supporting Paul and freeing him up to go now full-time gospel ministry. So Paul says he's preaching the gospel, he's full-time now in the synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And it says in the scripture, it says as he goes to do this, the Jews, what's their response? They oppose and revile him. He's trying to persuade them with the gospel. They oppose him and they revile him. Implicitly, all of them. I think we quickly skip over this, don't we? We quickly move on when we come to passages that talk about Paul being opposed and reviled. And we think, yeah, but it's Paul, the, the super apostle. No, no troubles at all being opposed and reviled. Yet how must have this felt for Paul to be opposed and reviled? I mean, have you ever shared the gospel with someone and been reviled? You know, I can only think of my just my little feeble attempts, like the other day when we did walk up and the first person we came to, I mean, I was so fearful. The first person we came to and we offered our survey and he ripped it up and threw it in the bin and or said he was going to rip it up and throw it in the bin, and I was just immediately discouraged. I was like, oh man, what are we doing this for? And yet Paul is daily in the synagogue 
trying to convince these people of the gospel and they oppose him and they revile him. Well, friends, the answer is we do get some insight into how Paul felt about this. In his letter to the first Corinthians, he describes exactly how he felt when he first took the gospel to the Corinthians. He writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, speaking of this moment, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says that in that moment, he was in fear and trembling and much weakness. Paul, you see, is in many ways a man just like us. And he is afraid for his own life. Well, so Paul says to the Jews as they oppose and revile him, you take responsibility for your own sins. I'm going to the the Gentiles. And... He carries on preaching, but he carries on preaching right next door. And you, you must, you must, this must have just enraged the Jews. I mean, imagine the scene, the synagogue's here. He's right next door, carrying on doing what he's doing, you know, right next door to them. And then suddenly, as he faithfully is preaching and teaching, Crispus, who's the, the uh, manager, if you like, of the synagogue, suddenly becomes a believer, him and his household, and they move next door, and Paul's preaching and teaching. And they must, you can just see them, they must be raging at this point. They're getting so mad. The, the scripture says that many more Corinthians became Christians, and so you can just imagine the opposition is escalating to break point. And there's this picture of Paul, who's growing in fear as probably threat after threat is coming in, and he's beginning to think, should I leave? What should I do? when suddenly a miraculous vision occurs. Read with me, chapter 18, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. The Lord Jesus speaks to Paul and says, do not be afraid for three reasons. One, because I'm with you. Two, because no one's going to attack you to harm you. And three, because there are many people in this city who are my people. You see, Paul is discouraged and afraid, but God lets him into his divine perspective. Paul is afraid for his life, but God shows him what he's doing in Corinth. He says, Corinth is a city with many people chosen by me to follow me. Corinth is a city with many people who will come to follow Christ. Is there any confusion from God's perspective about how many people will come to follow him in Corinth? Not at all. Is there... Is there Anyone who can stop God from saving those he's chosen in Corinth, no. And God reveals that to Paul, and Paul stays for another 18 months despite the opposition. You see, Paul now sees the divine perspective. Despite his discouragement, the gospel will go forward in Corinth. 
Well, 18 months of Paul relentlessly preaching the gospel right beside the synagogue go by and eventually it gets too much for the Jews. They can't take it anymore. So they drag Paul out and they drag him before Gallio, who's the, the elect uh, ruler of Corinth, elected governor, if you like, of Corinth. And they bring this charge against Paul and the charge is that this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. In other words, the charge that they bring against Paul is Christianity is an illegal religion. And so Paul stands up to make a defense. And Gallio, who is in front of all the people, doesn't even want to hear Paul's defense. He just dismisses it completely, says, this is a matter of your own law. I am not interested in it, whatever at all. This man is free to go. And so the Jews, they grab Sosthenes, who's the newly appointed governor or uh, manager, if you like, of the synagogue since Crispus has become a Christian, and they beat him right in front of Gallio for mucking up the trial. And Gallio completely turns the other way. He's not interested at all. Friends, for Corinth, this is a massive victory for the gospel. And the reason is because Gallio has, in fact, in effect said, Christianity is a legal religion. Christianity is a form of Judaism and is therefore a legal religion. And this man is free to go and preach. Friends, this is a massive victory for the gospel in this city. And so Paul remains and he stays for quite some time in Corinth, it says, before grabbing Priscilla and Aquila, some uh, the Christians he met right at the beginning and taking them and setting sail for Ephesus. Now, just by way of context, as we now arrive in our second city, Ephesus, Ephesus was a smaller city than Corinth at its peak, about half a million people. It was the capital of Asia Minor and also a, a commercial center. But although it was a commercial center, Ephesus was known for something else. If Corinth was a commercial center, Ephesus was the religious center. Ephesus was famous for religion. You see, Ephesus was famous for worship of the imperial cult, that is, worshipping the emperor as though he was God. At any one time, they had up to three temples worshipping the emperor in that city. But the most famous thing in Ephesus, by, by far, was the temple to the god Artemis, or as the Romans would call her, Diana. This temple was massive. This temple had a hundred pillars, 20 meters tall. It was four times that famous Greek temple in Athens, the Parthenon, you know, the one you see on all the postcards, four times the size. It had a ceiling of solid marble, a massive, massive structure, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And with worship of Diana in this city, of uh, Artemis in this city, came with it the practice, the widespread practice of the occult. So we have Ephesus, a religious center, and Paul arrives. Paul lands in an Ephesus and he goes, what he normally does, which is go straight to the synagogue to preach to the Jews. He then departs, leaving behind Priscilla and Aquila and goes around the area, preaching to the local churches, strengthening churches all throughout Asia. Priscilla and Aquila stay. They find this gifted preacher from Alexandria, a guy called Apollos, they 
see that Apollos, even though he's this gifted preacher, hasn't heard the full story of the gospel. So they, in this lovely moment, take him aside and, and fill him in on the details and, uh, about Jesus and the whole thing about him dying on the cross. And Apollos then now knows the full gospel and he wants to go to Corinth. So they send him off to Corinth. And Paul is traveling through. He comes back down to Ephesus and arrives back in Ephesus. He immediately finds some disciples of John the Baptist. They're not even Christians yet. They haven't even heard about the, the, the baptism of Jesus and Jesus dying on the cross. So he explains the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes because they've become Christians for the first time. And there's this mini Pentecost. And suddenly Paul, with this small group of followers, is back in town in Ephesus. So why don't you read with me? as Paul does what Paul does best, which is straight to the synagogue. Verse 8, chapter 19. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Paul is boldly speaking once again. He's reasoning. He's again persuading. He's trying to convince these Jews that the gospel is true, that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jews, what do they do? They speak evil of Christianity. Opposition again. And so easily we can... Treat Paul in this instance as though he's immune from this discouragement. As though this discouragement, this opposition doesn't affect you, uh, affect him at all. But this is not the case for Paul. In fact, we, we get another window possibly into this event in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, he writes about his time in Asia. Now, we don't know of the circumstance and we don't know exactly of the place, but of all the places that Paul stayed in Asia, he stayed the longest in Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of Asia. And of his time in Asia, Paul writes the following. He says to the Corinthians, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength. And we despaired. We despaired of life itself. Paul says that in Asia, he was so afflicted, he'd almost given up on his own life. Absolutely despairing. Just like you and me, Paul is a man prone to discouragement and despair. Well, he takes his disciples after the Jews speak evil of him. And he takes these disciples and he takes them to a lecture hall owned by a pagan called Tyrannus. And he stays there for two years preaching the gospel in this hall. And because Ephesus is this religious center and there's people coming in throughout, from, throughout the province, coming into this city, over those two years it says that Nearly all of Asia, in fact, all of Asia heard the gospel through Paul because people would come into this city and they'd hear about this Christian preacher preaching in this hall and they'd come to visit him and hear what he has to say. And so the gospel goes forward. But what happens next is equally amazing. 
Suddenly, God starts doing this, these amazing miracles through Paul. Suddenly, even handkerchiefs and things that he's touched, if other people were touching them, they'd be healed or exercised from demons, and the word starts to travel. And you have these Jewish itinerant exorcists who would go around trying to, trying to evoke uh, demons out of people, expel demons out of people. They hear about this, the name of this Jesus Christ guy that Paul is preaching, and they think, gee, this must be some sort of powerful sort of token that we can use in a chant or something. Let's try it out and see if it works. And so they, they, they come up to this man who's demon-possessed and they start explaining to him, uh, 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 trying to use Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, I adjure you, out of you, the spirit. And suddenly the demon in this man addresses these Jewish exorcists and says, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I've heard of, but who are you? And he overpowers them and he beats them and he flogs them and he strips them naked. And these men leave running for their lives, bleeding and naked. I mean, it must have been some sight to see. But suddenly people catch wind of this. Read with me, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. They hear about this event. They hear about what has happened. That, that the name of Jesus is powerful. They suddenly get this window into the divine perspective. That there is a spiritual world. But that Jesus Christ is a risen Lord over and above it. That his name is powerful. And that even demons bow their name to him. And suddenly they start honoring the name of Jesus. And, and the gospel just breaks free. Read with me. chapter uh, Verse 18 it says, also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they continued and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Suddenly there's a revival in Ephesus and people are coming forward and they're burning their books because they've come to meet the Lord Jesus. Well... Our story, the tale of two cities. Now our city. I want to turn to spend some time reflecting on some of the implications of what we see in this amazing story of two cities and how it applies to this city right here, Sydney. The first point I want to make an implication, I think, is that God sovereignly guides Paul to strategic cities. You see how God, by his spirit, leads him to these influential key cities. First to Athens, the intellectual center. Then by his spirit through to Corinth. Then by his spirit again through to Ephesus. Remember back in chapter 16, Paul had been forbidden by the Lord Jesus to travel to Ephesus because God had other plans for him. Here is a man guarded by the Holy Spirit directed to these cities of influence. And friends, I wanted to say to you this morning that if Paul had come to Australia he would have come to Sydney. Sydney, friends, for this nation is a strategic and influential city. There's also the commercial centre of our nation, the financial centre, in fact. It's the largest city. It's an influential city. It's a city full of people from tribes and nations from all around the world. It is a key and crucial city for the gospel, not only in our nation, but in our region. Paul would have come here. But not only that, Paul sovereignly is guided by the Holy Spirit to these cities. But you, my friends, 
have been sovereignly guided by God to this city. More than that, you, my friends, have been sovereignly guided by God to this church in this city. You see, if you're a Christian, you're not here by chance. Not at all. Your story, your life is not a story of chance. No, you see, we read in Paul's letter many years later to the Ephesians about God's perspective on your life. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you realize, friends, if you're a Christian, God chose you before the foundation of, your, of the world. Your life is not a, a story of chance or accident. Your life is a story of plan and purpose. And so even though you might be sitting here in church this morning and thinking, I'm not even sure what my gifting is. I'm not even sure what the contribution I make or can make to this church. You need to hear that God has a plan and purpose for you being part of this local body, this church. It is not by chance that you are here. It's part of his purpose and plan. See, because in the very beginning, God chose you. Though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, though you had rebelled against God and you were the king of your own life, he came after you. He foresaw that you would rebel against him, but he was not put off by that. He determined to save you. And he chose to save you at incredible cost to himself at the cost of his son, our Lord Jesus. So that by faith and faith in him alone, you might be reconciled to him. But not only reconciled to him, he made plans from before the foundation of the world for you to walk in good deeds. Your life is not an accident. You are here and part of this church for a purpose in a strategic city. Well, secondly... Point one, God sovereignly guides Paul to strategic cities. Point two, Paul takes the gospel to the religious and the irreligious. In fact, Paul takes the gospel to anyone who will listen. You see, in the synagogue, we have religious people. We have God-fearing people. You see, you can be a religious person, a person who goes to church, attends church, and you cannot be a Christian. Because going to church is not what makes someone a Christian. Trusting in Jesus Christ is what makes you a Christian. You can be a religious person and not know Jesus. So Paul preaches to the religious people, but he also goes to the irreligious people who will never attend church. You see, for us as a church, Sovereign Grace, we did some surveys a while ago, and one of the big things that people said is they, they felt as though their friends they wouldn't come to church. They live too far away. They wouldn't be interested. Well, if that's true, and I believe it is, we need to take the gospel to them. And friends, here in Acts chapter 18 and 19, we see Paul doing just that. He preaches to the religious in the synagogues. He preaches to people that would never attend synagogues. He preaches to everyone and anyone who will listen. And that also needs to be our practice. Well, point three... Not only does Paul take the gospel to the religious and the irreligious, Paul struggles and strives to win people. 
We see that word persuade used four times. He's out there to convince people. He's out there to win them. He wants to, not in a disparaging way, but in an appealing way. He believes the gospel is true. And he's out to do anything in his power to show people that it is true. But not only that, he's there for the long term. Friends, Paul spent a total of five years in Corinth and Ephesus. Five whole years he spent. But he didn't spend just preaching from a pulpit. He spent living amongst them, with them in their houses, on the streets, living with people in intimate relationship, preaching the gospel faithfully day in and day out. He was struggling and striving. He worked as a tent maker. He worked hard for the sake of the gospel. You know, you might be sitting here in church and and you're finding evangelism tough. Well, friends, I want to encourage you. So did Paul. Evangelism can be Difficult. And in the example of Paul, we see someone who is struggling and striving to win people for Jesus. John Stott puts it this way. He says, when we contrast much contemporary evangelism with Paul's, its shallowness is immediately shown up. Our evangelism tends to be too ecclesiastical, inviting people to church, whereas Paul also took the gospel out into the secular world. Too emotional, appeals for a decision without adequate basis for understanding. Paul taught and reasoned and tried to persuade. And too superficial, making brief encounters and expecting quick results. Whereas Paul stayed in Corinth and Ephesus for five years, faithfully sowing gospel seed and in its due time reaped a harvest. I think John Sott's right. Sometimes we can have a superficial approach to evangelism. Whereas in Paul, we see someone who struggles and strives to win people. Well, lastly, point four, Paul faced his discouragement with the divine perspective. You know, Paul faced numerous discouragements. He was opposed and reviled twice. He was dragged before Gallio in the next Versus, we're going to see that he's dragged before the city again. Paul faced numerous struggles and continues in face, in despite of his struggles and discouragements, to faithfully strive and preach the gospel. How is that possible? How can he do it? Well, I put to you, he had access to the divine perspective. Read with me again, Acts chapter 18, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will harm you to attack you in this city. For I have many in this city who are my people. The Lord Jesus appears to Paul and says, Don't be afraid, Paul. I have many people in this city, and no one's going to harm you to attack you, because I am with you. Paul, in that moment, has access to the divine perspective. His perspective is altered in that moment, and he sees all of what God is doing in that city. But he also came to to understand the divine perspective in everything. I want to read to you again that passage that I read earlier from Paul's time in Ephesus, from 2 Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But hear this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And Paul suffers this incredible affliction, but now with the divine perspective, he sees that God had a purpose and a plan even in that. He says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 5-7, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul came to understand that there was a sovereign Lord that despite his discouragement was building his church. He had access to the divine perspective. You know, we may have not had a divine vision, but we do have access to the same perspective through his word. So friends, I just want to encourage you. Are you discouraged? Are you feeling discouraged in your attempts to win family and friends? You've been trying to share the gospel with them for now it seems like years and seen no fruit. Give yourself to this word. Access in here the divine perspective. The divine perspective of an unstoppable gospel that is going forward. Of a God that has a purpose and a plan even in the face of discouragement. You know, I wanted to just end this message uh, just with an illustration. In fact, a story um, of this exact thing happening in this church. The gospel going forward in the face of discouragement. I I asked a number of people uh, if they had stories to share. And a few people actually got back to me uh, of of stories that they have that illustrate this recent examples of discouragement, but the gospel still going forward. So Mel Coe kindly shared a story that um, she thought would be appropriate to share, and I think it's just, it's just a neat example of this. So Mel writes the following. She says, I think a recent story would have been of my time staying with my aunt. While I was staying with her, I was able to share the gospel with her over the first three days helping her see a different way of life. My aunt is a person who has heard the gospel many times through her sister, my mum, but has been called to it. Then there was a misunderstanding within the time I was with her that led her to be really upset, and I was devastated thinking I had destroyed the message of the gospel I had presented to her, and I ended up in tears. But I knew very clearly that God is sovereign, When I did not know where to go and after praying with some friends, I learnt sorry in Cantonese from Niti and went down to apologise. My aunt's reaction blew me away. She accepted my apology and said she knew my heart was to care for her and that the breakdown of communication was the cause of the misunderstanding. It brought us closer and I could see it was God's grace and mercy. Hear this. The gospel really has fruited in my aunt's life. And it's an ongoing story with her with many sticky bombs. I'm so thankful to God for God to change my discouragement into joy. Discouragement, the gospel's still going forward. Friends, I want to encourage you, if you're discouraged, access the divine perspective. See a gospel that's going forward despite discouragement. Well, In the tale of these two cities, we see some lessons for here in in this city. Let's take heart and keep going in the work of the gospel as we consider the divine perspective. Even in the midst of discouragement, friends, this gospel will go forward. Well, why don't you join with me in praying for a gospel movement in this city?
Lord Jesus, we just cry out for grace. We love you. We love your gospel. We also love our friends and family who don't know you, Lord. Lord, would you do an amazing work in this city? Would you bring many, many hearts to trust in Christ for the first time, Lord? May there be many people in this church worshipping the risen Jesus for the very first time as they meet him through your word. And we pray this in his name. Amen.